Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buda. In this episode, we are continuing our coverage of The Portrait by Nikolai Gokul, originally published in 1835, then expand and revised and republished in 1842. This is our discussion episode. Right. This is the the second of two episodes. We did the recap already. This is the discussion. And as we said last time, as we said on that recap episode, there's a lot to talk about. So let's just get straight into it. Uh, What's up first, Brandon? Well, I'm going to start with a little anecdote to orient maybe you and our listeners into where I'm I'm coming from with my <laughs> approach to this text. Uh, while I was living in Philadelphia, I had the opportunity to see Roger Scruton uh, speak at UPenn as part of a lecture series in honor of G.E.M. Anscombe, who I haven't read, but she was an important philosopher in the 20th century. And in any event, Scruton was her student. And The talk focused on the relationship between ethics and aesthetics, which, hey, that's pretty relevant to this story. (laughs) Then I'm not going to offer an apologia for Scruton here. Your mileage may vary with him if you've encountered his works or thought, or you're just tangentially aware of the public excoriation that he faced in the last years of his life. Um, But I really enjoyed his talk as he discussed the similarities between ethical and aesthetic judgments. And he pointed out that making good aesthetic judgments, or as we'd say, like having good taste, say in favor of beauty or goodness, doesn't really entail a good ethic. That is to say that appreciation of beauty or a well-developed sense of beauty or having well-formed tastes do not necessarily a good person make. And I, I bring this up because this story is really caught up in the relationship between ethics and aesthetics on on one level and on social and individual good on the other. It deals with class, economic, and material issues on the societal level and on personal responsibilities and individual choices on another. In other words, Gogol is dealing with the question of how artistic ideals relate to the social good and the interplay but. Between them. And our discussion then will be an attempt to explicate much of what I just said through the <laughs> lens of this story. We'll look at it that the portrait primarily, I think, as a fable that is concerned with driving towards a moral more than as an artifact of 19th century Russian literature. And of course, we'll also look at it as a weird tale because, hey, that's what we're here for. <laughs> um, but there is there is one more bit of extra textual orientation that I'd like to offer before we start our discussion in earnest. And that is uh, Jesus's parable of the talents. And this teaching by Jesus is part of a series of parables that he teaches about the kingdom of heaven and the final judgment after he enters Jerusalem and before he's crucified. So in this parable, Jesus is explaining what the kingdom of heaven will be like and how the final judgment of God on mankind will take place. I'm going to read this parable. It's uh, Matthew 25, verses 14 to 29. Um, Matthew is the gospel known for kind of having a lot of Jesus's sermons and teachings and parables and stuff like that. Uh, Again, the it here that that Jesus refers to is how one goes about entering the kingdom of heaven and and also God's judgment. Uh, I'm reading the English standard version because it's what I have on hand. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey 
who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Glenn, I I wonder, first of all, if this parable flashed in your mind as you read this story, and also if you think I just wasted everyone's time by reading it in consideration of the portrait by Gogol. Right. Well, I don't think you've wasted anybody's time here. I mean, this is the parable of the talents is a, a really important part of of the text. I mean, I think the the book of Matthew is is to my mind the most interesting of the Gospels. I don't know. That's probably a a, a gauntlet I've thrown down there, but I, I find <laughs> Matthew very interesting, and this parable in particular is really interesting. You know, the the parables of Jesus, of course, are these little riddles, right? You you sort of have to uh, know the code to, in order to understand you know, what is the meaning? Like, what's the secret message we're supposed to gain from this? And of course, you know, people argue about these things. This is you know, part of the fun of going to divinity school and getting a degree in, uh, you know, Christian theology and uh, and and so on. And uh, this one is a lot of fun. This one is, is really quite interesting, but I did not think about it at all when I was reading the portrait. But, you know, the portrait is very much concerned with with money and and certainly with money lending, right? With, with uh, using money itself, you know, pieces of, of metal dug out of the earth and stamped with a, a picture on them uh, in order to create more of those, this kind of you know magic, the, the alchemy of uh, investment returns. But I had not made any connection between the two of them, but uh, I expect you're going to walk us through what you're seeing here. 
Well, another way that this parable is typically interpreted because of the funny coincidence of talent being both a measure of money, but also the way we describe a person's innate abilities to maybe have some bearing on the world in some way in terms of uh, natural ability. This story is entirely caught up with not only the money lending aspect of how money ought to be used in a society, in the good that money can do, but also in the ways in which we are custodians of our own gifts. Um, You can think of money more broadly or the talent more broadly in this parable as a gift given by by God that is put in our care to cultivate and expand upon and invest in and cultivate within ourselves. And so this story is really caught up with the meaning of this parable, which is that if you squander and waste what you are given, it will all be taken away from you. You won't even have what you were given at the end of the day. In other words, this has a bearing on ethical judgment as well on how we are judged and maybe a mode of which we ought to judge one another. And I am not really interested in the conversation of how we judge one another. There's other uh, teachings of the Sermon on the Mount that really warn us against judging one another, (laughs) but more about, um, you could look at it in another way of judgment as a mode of encouragement. Like, hey, are you really using the best of your ability for the best good? Because the you will lose it if you don't, and I want the best for you. So, like that's another way we can use the word judgment. Not like there's something wrong with you, you lousy, worthless slave. Like we shouldn't be going around calling each other that uh, because we didn't do a good job with cultivating our artistic talent. Um, but it also has to do with the way we maybe are afraid of investing in our own talents, our own innate abilities and cultivating them because we don't think we'll be received for those innate abilities in our temporal context. And this is sort of the story of, of, of Charkov, in my opinion. I think that's a great reading of, of Chartkov, right? He is someone who seems to, to run away from his own talent. I mean, there's this moment at the, near the beginning of the novella where he is faced with this dilemma of you know, knowing that he could do this type of work over here that would be great work, that would be to contribute art to the world. And then, of course, at the end of the story, we get you know, this great speech about how art is a force for good in the world. And you need g- people with this great talent like Chartkov in order to do that. But he chooses not to. Instead of using his talent as a force for good in the world, he uses it to to make money. And of course, this ends up bringing him no joy, no happiness, and in fact, only miserable and uh, or misery and an early death. Uh, so that's a great way of, of thinking about Chartkov's experience here. Yeah, in the text, he's presented to us as someone with talent, but who is betrayed, and maybe it's a, a fatal flaw sort of thing, like, or maybe it's an intervention of the fates. He's betrayed in his service to artistic greatness by his own flaws. And his core flaw, I think, as Gogol sees it, or maybe this is my interpretation, is a commitment to being wealthy and to be received by the elites in society. In other words, his aims are temporal and maybe too low for someone aspiring to excellence. Tarkov serves a low purpose. 
And he's presented as a bad example of the sort of ends that artists and art should serve. So I, I wonder then, thinking about this, if we contrast Charkov with the artist who took his time to develop his talent and created something worthy of admiration, what Gogol is maybe saying about the role of art in society. We also know that at the end of the story, since we're not, if we assume that Charkov is the person whose estate is being sold off, that he's kind of forgotten, but ev everybody knows this other artist. He's well known if we're tying those two story together. So what what did you make of what Gogol is saying about the role that art should play in society? Right. On the, on the one hand, we've got Chartkov here who makes a career out of decorating the homes of, of wealthy people, decorating the homes of aristocrats in, in ways that are uh, uh, self-flattering, that are ego-stroking for, for the paying customer, really, right? I mean, that's, that's what we're being shown here. He's having to attach himself, to affix himself to the upper class in order to make a living, though he is also doing quite well as a result of it. Uh, but then we have this contrast, maybe less so, I think, actually with the narrator of the the origin story for the portrait, who almost certainly has to be the the, the painter who's painting Chartkov was going to judge and, and you know, started all of the business with Chartkov collecting uh, works of art and then destroying them, but really more with his father, who devotes his life to using his great talent to not decorating the homes of rich people, but decorating churches, right? That he uses his work of art as a way of helping people uh, worship, helping people venerate, helping people reach some kind of, of spiritual meaning or really any kind of spiritual goal, I guess, in, in their lives. And uh, also then, of course, they're in public is a big part of this, right? They're not behind the closed doors of you know the 1%, that they're in public. Anyone can go see them. Anyone can receive the the beauty and the the joy uh, and the holiness that is in those works, right? And I think that's the the contrast between these two. Yeah, I wonder if you think Gogol is making the point that art elevates or edifies uh, society. We have these two parallel examples of the public's interest in the art shop at the opening of part one, and and then the interest of the public in the estate sale in part two. And we, the story is littered with references to the Renaissance artists or the Dutch masters. And I'm wondering then, kind of going along with what you were saying, that Gogol is suggesting that there was some sort of, you know, quote, golden age of art and patronage where the works of Raphael or, or Rembrandt or whomever, where their art elevated society and now art doesn't do that. And the question then is, what does Gogol think has happened that art has stopped serving humankind? And this is the ostensible goal of realism and naturalism, by the way, as, a, as opposed to the goal of the Romantic era where the goal of art was art pour la art or art for art's sake. What has stopped art from serving humankind? Or, or how do you see maybe the way that it's presented in this story, the influence of class and money as playing a role in the declining role of art and the artist. 
Right. Yeah, that was where I was trying to go, actually, when I started talking and then distracted myself and didn't really answer your question. So I'm glad you reeled me back in, right? Because the contrast I, I really wanted to make was between, you know, art as decoration or, you know, if we're thinking about stories, then as entertainment versus art as art, right? Or, you know, art as as something lofty in the world, a force for good in some way, something that that gives us meaning. Uh, I will say to my mind, you know, I think we, we need to do, we do need to do what you're suggesting, which is talk about what Gogol is up to here. But to my mind, this distinction is is not useful. I don't think that it's profitable. I don't think it's a good distinction. Uh, and, you know, anyway, who is the arbiter of where that line is uh, to begin with? I think there are a host of problems of thinking this way. Uh, Graham Greene, someone we've talked about on the air before, thought this way. He thought this way about his own work. He divided his own stories into arts and entertainments. Uh, I tend to like his entertainments more than his arts, but also to find great meaning in the books that he thought were, you know, just entertainments that he wrote for commercial success. Uh, and and I think that that's definitely, and then even just thinking about how art is created, right? That uh, art that has constraints placed on it because of, of commercial concerns, budgetary concerns, just what materials, what supplies you have available to you is part of the fun, part of the challenge of art. And some of our greatest works of art, whether it's you know painting or sculpture or uh, some, some form of storytelling or, or music, grow out of, of having constraints. And, and actually, that was something that jumped out to me about Chartkov's journey, is that Gogol really emphasizes that for the first time now, uh, now that Chartkov has come into these thousand rubles, he can buy all of the supplies that he wants, where previously he's been having to make do with what he can get his hands on. And working within those constraints was one of the things I think that led to his skill, to his talent uh, getting exercised. Uh, so all of that's just a little bit of an aside there. Uh, but just uh, before getting around to you know, what is Gogol actually doing here. And my sense is, and I, I think you're going to disagree with me here, Brandon, or at least you will have taken a different tack than this, but I didn't really see Gogol so much uh, taking up this particular issue. I really saw Gogol here uh, dealing with class issues here and how art is produced and who art is for. Uh, I think this defense of monarchy speech about sort of you know trickle-down economics as it relates to art and artists, that was really where I saw him making contrast rather than uh, emphasizing this dichotomy of, of uh, high art versus art that's just for decoration or entertainment. But you are way more into the philosophy of aesthetics than I am, which is, I'm not into at all in any way. So you probably have some more sophisticated thoughts about this. Well, I, I, I think they'll probably come out as we kind of move more into weaving the ethical conversation into the aesthetic one. But my sense is that Gogol was somehow saying that much in the film like Midnight in Paris was uh, was making an argument for for like the first half of the movie that there is some sort of golden age like there was some sort of time in a sense where the role of art in society as it was wholly driven by the patron system whether it was the patronage of the church or of individual aristocratic desires was about the good and of course this sort of thinking really ignores the realities of society. Like art doesn't feed anybody, right? It doesn't solve any societal ills. And I think that there is a really kind of complex relationship in this story between art 
and duty that Gogol is up to, whether or not we agree with it uh, is another question. But I think he's thinking of the artist the way that we're still kind of sometimes think about the ideal of the artist, that kind of auteur vision, that person who is so talented and so maybe overwhelmingly talented that what they do is really a reflection of them being in close contact with like a good creator God, a beneficent divine figure. And there is a kind of metaphysics to the story that we'll, we'll touch on in a little bit, but that now I think is a really good time probably to look at the father's speech at the end of the story. And this type of holy father is one of my favorite character types, maybe in Russian literature. I can only think of one other one there, though they might be around more. Uh, this father really calls to my mind, Father Zosima in the Brothers Karamazov. This character is so admirable that you can't really fault him for his commitment to piety and his glorious soul transformation. So what I'm going to do here is just read the father's comments on the role of art in a cultured society and, and not so much the second half of his speech, which is kind of about um, stay lowly, be a good, humble person. The higher you rise, the more you'll be judged. You know, this is also what we saw in the parable of the talents. And so let me just read this really brief speech. It starts this way. I have been waiting for you, my son, he said when I approached to receive his blessing. The path which your life will henceforth follow lies before you. This path is pure. Do not deviate from it. You have talent, and talent is God's most precious gift. Do not ruin it. Seek. Study everything you see. Submit everything to your brush, but learn to find the inner thought in everything. And try, most of all, to comprehend the lofty mystery of creation. Blessed is the chosen one who possesses it. No subject in nature is low for him. In the lowly, the artist creator is as great as he is in the great. For him, the contemptible is no longer contemptible. For the beautiful soul of the creator shines invisibly through it, and the contemptible is given lofty expression. For it has passed through the purgatory of his soul. For man, art contains a hint of the divine, heavenly paradise, and this alone makes it higher than all else. As solemn peace is higher than all worldly trouble, as creation is higher than destruction, as an angel in the pure innocence of his bright soul is higher than all the innumerable powers and proud passions of Satan. So is a lofty artistic creation higher than anything that exists in the world. Give all to sacrifice to it and love it with all your passion. Not passion that breathes of earthly lust, but quiet, heavenly passion, without which man is powerless to rise above the earth and is unable to give the wondrous sounds of peace. For artistic creation comes down to earth to pacify and reconcile all people. It cannot instill murmuring in the soul, but in the sound of prayer strives eternally toward God. But there are moments, dark moments. That's the end of the speech. And what strikes me about it is what 
I think Gogol is trying to strike the balance of between the individual impact of striving for personal piety, of using the best of your gifts, and what that does in transforming a society. He's saying that the artist, in some sense, takes on this individual burden to represent the kind of metaphysical realities of creation by elevating even the lowliest of subjects to the role they have in the kind of larger cosmology of being. I mean, the father seems to indicate that everything properly studied by the pious artist is elevated in some sense by the artist's ability to connect that subject, as I said, to a larger cosmology. And yet, the father also seems to su suggest that some things ought not to be represented represented as an image. They are better if they're cast away and not preserved. And this almost seems to be a conflicting sentiment. And I wonder what you made of it, Glenn. Is the problem with the eponymous portrait of this story that it represented something truly diabolical as too human and so imbued it with a type of power was, in other words, the true image of the moneylender, something that should have been more vicious and diabolical, something lower on the scale of creation. And did the father then elevate that image of the moneylender, you know, in the sense that he painted the moneylender in the place with the humans in a cosmology of being rather than something like a devil? Did the father miss then the, that metaphysical reality of the moneylender and so misrepresented the image. And that's what the mistake was in the father's creation of this portrait. That's a hyper-specific question there. But also, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about, too, the roles of the individual artist in society and the impact they have to draw the attention of the public to maybe focus on something better, some better good. I want to zoom out here and think about who the father is and, and what his broader cosmology is here, right? The father is a painter. He's this amazing painter. That's really how we see him when we're reading this story that is about painting and, and painters. But when he is delivering this speech, right, he's a monk. He's a Christian monk. He's specifically an Orthodox Christian monk. And the speech that he's giving to his son here is reflecting that, reflecting the fact that he is a, a part of the church, that he's speaking as this, this emblem of, of piety. And the cosmology here is Neoplatonic Christianity. Uh, that's that's what's going on here, right? There's uh, elements of of Platonism here uh, in the sense that he's describing uh, an ideal role for artists in society, but he is also describing something that seems quite a bit like the the allegory of the cave, right? That the role of artists here is to try to capture the true essence of the things that are in this world, as as if the way things are in this world is not quite real, is not quite true. So uh, it really seems like Gogol had recently read The Republic and was was thinking about <laughs> both the sort of metaphysics there, but then also the ideal of society here. That, that was my sense of what's going on here. But then that is infused with Christian thinking about souls and uh, souls inhabiting material bodies and, and, and being in this material world. And so we have God's awesome special creation that 
also has some awful stuff in it, right? This is this is the reality that we we all we all live in, right? The the world is great, but also the world is awful. But also, right? It's what we've it's what we've got, right? We've all experienced this uh, for our, ourselves in, in, at some point in our in our lives. And one of the ways of of thinking about that, this Neoplatonic Christian way of thinking about that, is of course to think that the bad stuff in the world has been ushered in through a force for evil, right? That the force for good made everything, and it's awesome. And then there was a force for evil that uh, went to work to lessen it, to to taint it, to make what was light uh, even just a tad darker. Uh, this is a way of of thinking about the the fall of man in in Genesis, but then also still often by many Christians regarded as uh, an active thing that is still happening in the world, right? That there is a spiritual battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and we are at work in it, right? That we are we are both players in it and also the object of it at the the same time and and to me that that seemed to be the the cosmology that the father is espousing here and so what has happened is that he had tried very hard to be an instrument of good to add goodness to the world by drawing out the the true beauty of the the representations uh, the material representations of what is in this earth but he used his talent to represent the true evilness of the antagonist of the devil and has now actually unleashed that in the world with more power than it otherwise would have been because he wasn't on guard. That, that, that's my sense of what's going on here. Yeah, that that's my sense as well. And it, that, that question of representation uh, is a really big part of this story. I mean, you're you're absolutely right to bring up Neoplatonism. I, as I was reading this story, I was thinking a lot about Plato's, you know, desire to outlaw poets and stuff in, <laughs> in the ideal society, because representations can be corrupting in a sense. They're, they're, they provide maybe uh, sort of a too simple or a too beautiful or a too elevated sort of representation to latch onto that ignores maybe the things that need to change or the things that need to be addressed in society. And th- this that's sort of an, an ethical question at that point. It's not that... I, I, I am not of the belief that having good taste has any impact on one's ability to do good in the world or an appreciation of beautiful things, music, art, whatever, they can elevate your own life. And certainly maybe as an artist, you can strive to put more good things in the world than than bad things. But it might not have any real bearing on our own ethics, though Gogol seems to be driving at that in this story. So kind of the last question I want to ask in this ethics aesthetics relation is to think about how Gogol is connecting these two things in this story. And it seems odd to me that in a story really about the power of art or a story that's trying to explore the edifying role that art ought to have in a society that the main feature of the story is an evil portrait that makes people do evil things. We all know that a fascination with evil and a study to it of it and a, a desire to be proximal in relationship to in relation to evil will do very little to uplift our soul or our sense of well-being. And so we're given a contrast in the story, the, the image of the father, the story of the father 
who after being close to evil, dedicated his life to studying only the good in creation and then advises his son to do the same. But still, I feel like the corrupting influence on society in Gogol's read of it, using the image of the moneylender as the picture of evil, that the real corrupting influence here is the desire to accumulate wealth for its own sake or to shield yourself or hide yourself from the truths of the world that are inconvenient to you. And this has almost nothing to do with the art that we casually consume. So I guess I'm asking, what did you make of the connection between the corrupting influence of money on society and the ideal ethics of patronage as a means of creating objects that are worthy of admiration and contemplation? That's a great question. I, I, I want to jump back just a minute, though, about to your to your invocation of uh, Plato's treatment of poets in the, the Republic, because I do think that Gogol who would be a poet, right, in uh, in Plato's scheme of things, is is being defensive here in arguing for what poets or artists more broadly can, in fact, bring to the perfect society, uh, though is also acknowledging Plato's concerns, right, which is that poets are able to bring falsehood, bring falseness, to bring untruths into society, to be a corrupting force. Uh, Gogol here is Gogol is showing us that that is absolutely true, but then is also trying to show us that 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 can be counterbalanced, and in fact, that you know maybe there are two things we need to do that would be better than banning art from your society, but would in fact be to encourage people to use their artistic talents for good, and then also to encourage artists to guard against uh, using their talents in these ways. And I think absolutely right, painting an overly realistic portrait of a money lender <laughs> and that portrait becoming a force for evil in the world. I mean, that's that's a metaphor that's quite on the nose, right? That that's maybe not the part of the world that we should be emphasizing if we're trying to make this world the best possible world, right? That money lending is perhaps not the thing that we should be doing. And I, it's certainly no coincidence, right? That the thing that Chartkov does when he is using his talent and being the sort of person that the, the father is, is talking about here is that he is painting poor people and the apartment of his own apartment, uh, an apart, poor, the apartment of an impoverished artist, right? That this is very Christ-like in the sense of looking at the world of the poor and the low and finding the beauty of creation there and not seeking after something else. Yeah, Gogol also seems to be on a bit of a tear against rent seekers, right? So money lending is a form of rent seeking in that your capital is accumulating without labor. Though, of course, keeping spreadsheets and books and logs and stuff is, I guess, a kind of labor, but it's, <laughs> it's not uh, ennobling, I think, in Gogol's mind or really in anybody's mind. And he also criticizes bankers. And the landlord is also a kind of villainous figure in this story as well. One thing that I think Gogol is attacking as an ethic is that when we shift wealth, I don't know if he's defending, you know, we looked at that defense of monarchy and aristocracy by, you know, de facto defense of aristocracy, I suppose that the right people are in power and the right people have money because that's the way God orders things. 
uh, w- one thing that Gogol is maybe looking at is the rise of the the middle class here and saying that rent-seeking as a behavior in society shifts the values of society, which is obviously true. It's, a, it's, it's not what we should idealize or represent as being the best thing, wealth for its own sake. I mean, forget art for its own sake. We have a problem in our society where we have wealth for its own sake. And I wonder if that is maybe another angle that Gogol is attacking here, is that rent-seeking behavior has really corrupted a no, like the noble ideals of our culture, of his culture, I should say. Oh, absolutely. I mean, th- this whole defense of monarchy speech is, well, asking for money, right? He's saying that, you know, the hallmark of being a good monarch is supporting artists. And hey, if artists are supported, then they don't have to waste their talent. And hey, look, here's a, a morality tale about how wasting your talent in the pursuit of just a basic ability to pay rent literally unleashes actual evil into the world and leads people to suicide and and madness and uh, beating their their family trying to kill their their wife and and all of these horrible things so you know hey if there happened to be a monarch around somewhere who was really interested in making the best and most harmonious uh, society possible one I suppose you should probably read The Republic. Check it out. It's pretty good. Also, uh, give money to artists so that they can use their talent to edify rather than to harm. I mean, he's asking for money. Probably he owed some rent when he was writing this story. <laughs> there, there's every chance in the world that he did. I, I just I, I love how complex this story is. And the overlap of ethics and aesthetics interests me deeply um, because even going back to Kant, for instance, uh, philosophers have noticed the way that our judgments between art and aesthetics are really similar. And so it can be really easy to confuse good ethics with good aesthetics. I mean, this culminates in kind of Foucault's writing where he's like, hey, live a life worthy of like artistic beauty and kind of even credits Christ with having this sort of uh, artistic beauty to his life. And what I mean by judgments here is when we say we admire a piece of art, yes, we can talk about technique. We can talk about its virtues as a, as, as craft, which is totally doable. But also part of what we're saying is, Hey, this is good and you should like it too. And ethicists have also noticed that that is the way we make moral or ethical judgments. Hey, this is right, and you should also think it's right. And I think that there, that that form uh, of ethics has actually led to a lot of problems in our society that I won't get into uh, <laughs> of confusing ethical and aesthetic judgments. But the basic formula of those judgments is very similar, and it's so easy, I think, to not say that like there is a good um saying that there is a good is not the same thing as saying hey i like this and you should too uh so i i like the way gogol is kind of working in this story and i also like the uh kind of attack on rent seeking behavior in society because <laughs> man that is the parasite of capitalism if there if there ever is one even though this was not a capitalistic society that gogol was writing about 
Yeah, I don't know quite how to characterize 19th century, especially early 19th century Russia. But as I said in the recap episode, we are dealing with the world of the Industrial Revolution here, though that is a little slow to come to Russia compared to Germany and and France and certainly Britain as, as well. But it is happening in Russia at this time, and it is reorienting society and is uh, allowing for greater specialization of labor and is allowing for greater congregation in cities, but is also leading to uh, an even greater wealth disparity. And we have seen time and again how 19th century writers in the United States and in, in Britain and now here in Russia as well are really attuned to that, right? They are looking at the world around them and wondering how it got that way and wondering if this is the best of all possible worlds, right? Should the world be this way? And if not, what could we do to make it better and hey, here's a weird fiction story about it, right? There's gonna be something something horrific, something numinous going on in this story that we find weird and unsettling, which we definitely do have going on in this story. Yeah, I mean, I think we should move on from our big, broader conversation and uh, talk about what uh, people support us to talk about, which is how this <laughs> functions as a weird horror tale. This is essentially a cursed object story, uh, and we've come across haunted paintings in the in the past. You know, you brought up the E. e. Nesbitt story that we covered that was called the Ebony Frame. Uh, another story that really focuses on the frame of the painting. <laughs> <laughs> in a weird way. But I, I wonder if you want, if you think that Gogol wants us to think that, you know, the soul of the money letter really transmigrated to the painting. That's another, you know, platonic term. Um, and that it's this soul that has corrupted everybody, this evil soul. Is the money lender just that toxic? Or do you think that the money lender here is the metaphor made real, the allegory meant to represent the shifting attitude that leads to corruption in, in broader society. I mean, really, one, what do you make of this as a cursed object story? And two, is there a rational explanation for what's going on? Or is this really a metaphysical horror? I think the answer is yes. <laughs> which is to say that it, it is absolutely working on this this metaphorical sense, which is, I guess, really what we started with is, you know, what is the the aim here? What is Gogol actually talking about? But I do think that there is some metaphysics working here. I don't think that uh, what's happening, I don't think that the money in the portrait is, well, certainly that's not a metaphor. I think that that's real. But I do also think that there is actually something numinous about the portrait. I don't think that the money was in there when he bought it, when Charles bought it at the art shop. I think the money got there when the portrait realized that that is what Chartkov needs. That's the thing that Chartkov can be tempted with, right? That I do think that the portrait is numinous and that it is a tempter, right? That it is giving people the thing that they think that they want and then allowing the possession of that thing to be their undoing. Because we do see that that changes, right? It's not always the same thing for, for everybody. Chartkov, though, needs money. And so money is what we get here. And I do think that that is a numinous metaphysical power that is happening here, or sort of weird magic that's going on. The, the question, I think, though, for me is, is how does that work, right? Specifically, what is happening? This is the question of, is the soul of the moneylender in here, or is it not in here? And what has happened is that the, the, the father who becomes the monk, the guy who painted this thing, is it simply that he was painting this with evil in his heart and that evil got into the portrait and that's independent of the soul of 
the moneylender. I think for me, that's the question. But I suppose it's possible that you don't think there's anything numinous happening in the story. Yeah, I mean, like I said in our recap episode, when I really thought about the dream, if the money's real and it came out of the painting, I mean, it's it's a strange sort of prophetic dream uh, that the painter Tarkov would have that's so specific to the reality. But then when we get to the second half of the story and the guy in the painting is getting out and walking around and stuff. He's like an evil ghost who's just tormenting people. That to me kind of clinches it as, as it being a more of a metaphysical numinous uh, evil soul in the painting sort of thing. And, and you know, the word transmigration is used here that this moneylender was so evil and wanted this painting to be so lifelike because he feared death. You know, he, he is, he is the, person who took the wrong lessons from the parable of the talents. Yes, he enlarged the wealth, but not for any master. So like we can think of the master as the divine, as it's clearly represented in the parable of the talents. But if you want to take a more uh, kind of broad approach to that idea, master is really the best in society, the best we offer up that kind of rules us. And he didn't even do that. He just hoarded money. And it's that evil uh, that would have that evil instinct that makes him like the slave who received one talent and then was cast out. And maybe the moneylender wanted his soul to be captured so he didn't have to endure, you know, the torments of hell, for instance. Um, <laughs> and so that's why he wanted this painting. And he took advantage of a talented and poor painter. And the father's mistake was in doing this for money, even though he knew that this person was evil. So he even kind of crossed a moral line there as well that contributed to the evil of the painting. Right. The, the, the father was interested in doing the portrait in part, though, because he already had decided he wanted to use the image of the evil moneylender in his depiction of the devil, his depiction of Satan in a painting he was going to do for the church and thought, oh, this is great. He wants to sit for me, so I'll make this amazing portrait of him, which I then will be able to use as a model for my own work. So I think that there is a, a layer of, of complication here, that it's not just about having taken the payment. And I think this is where we, we get back to the, the Neoplatonism here, of the, the idea that there are things in the world that are just evil in and of themselves, and we need to be on guard against them. Uh, and I guess I think to me, thinking about it, that way. I think this pushes me to the side of, yeah, it's definitely the spirit of the moneylender that has gotten into this painting somehow, uh, rather than that the, the painting is simply infused with some sort of taint in the the, the painter's own soul. I, I wonder where you come down on that, Brandon. Right. I mean, that's a really good question. I think it's because the soul of the moneylender is in it, though the father takes that personal responsibility on himself and says, I was corrupt and even wanting to paint it. I shouldn't have even wanted to represent the devil in a painting in this way. I mean, that's not something that we should be focusing on or looking at as a as a society. That's not an object worthy of, you know, admiration and, and contemplation, as I've said before. 
um, that his motivation was corrupt. And so he's saying, hey, this moneylender was absolutely evil. But in my own small way, I have to take responsibility for the evil that I contribute to the world. And so he's balancing that social responsibility with individual responsibility. What what you just said, though, struck me um, because it's the same. We can parallel that desire to create a great piece of art using a model that we think might represent that art in the way that Tarkov paints his psyche. And that the line that Tarkov crossed was in letting the people believe that this psyche that he painted was the portrait of the young girl. And that was self-seeking behavior. That was only going to enlarge him in the minds of society. And if we're paralleling these two desires, we might think that the father's motivation was to, again, to enlarge his position in society, even in the churches, to get more work, to continue his own um, reputation, his good reputation, and that that was the corrupt influence, was to let people believe something that's not true about you or to use somebody to your own ends, to satisfy your own ends. And uh, there's a, maybe a moral lesson in there as well. Let me ask you one more question about the moneylender, because there there is a sense, right? The 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 painter, the the father painter, the monk painter, who painted the portrait, really thinks to really seems to think that the moneylender is actually the devil and not just a human who is lending money to people at uh, terrible interest rates and is a, a menace in society. And then some of the the ways that we see that are that there's maybe some kind of magic around even the the terms of the loans where people think that they're actually getting these loans at a very low interest rate. And then later, somehow it turns out that that wasn't true, that it was in fact always a very high interest rate, but that they didn't notice that. And then also the fact that he is not from anywhere that he has aspects of uh that he has physical and cultural aspects of uh coming from several different places and such that he doesn't actually appear to come from anywhere on the world and no one can tell what his ethnicity or nationality or, or culture is merely that he but they can tell that he is some kind of outsider so all of that is, I think, meant to suggest that he is actually the devil who is wandering the earth. But then he himself, the way he talks is such that he is a human who is about to die and he's worried about it and wants to get his soul into this painting. I was a little conflicted about which it is here. I took a lot of the father's metaphysics and cosmology as more representative of his commitment to piety and uh, his belief system more than Gogol saying that the devil was the moneylender. I think that it's a fair reading of the story to say that that's what the father believed. But I think Gogol makes us question not the father's larger beliefs, but this belief in particular with the sort of conflict of the, the conflicts that you just brought up in the text. Yeah, that's my sense as well. I, I think the 
teeth would be taken out of the bite a little bit if we think this is actually the devil rather than simply a human who has gone wrong and is is doing wrong, right? This is certainly a story about people going wrong and doing wrong. And I think that we need the source of evil in this story to be a human rather than to actually be the devil as well. But I do think this is an open question. I would love to hear what, what other, uh, what I would love to hear what our listeners, other people who've read this story think about this question. Yeah, I would as well. This story is really rich. And so it's open to many interpretations that I have one more question to ask you, which is kind of this. If you came across this story in 1925 in a weird fiction magazine alongside Lovecraft or whomever, what would your thoughts be? I mean, if we were to just put this purely in the stream of the weird or a horror story and you read it in the context of like a weird tales magazine, what would you think of it? Would you think more deeply about it? Would the context of putting it alongside these authors change your experience of the story? Would you still encounter it as this sort of moralizing fable as we've been talking about it? Or would you think you could really encounter the story as a horror tale? Well, I think you could definitely encounter this story as a horror tale and still also glean a lot of uh, of <laughs> substantive meaning out of it as, as we have tried to do. But, you know, I think setting this next to a Lovecraft story. I mean, I th- Lovecraft is doing a lot of the same things that Gogol is, right? I mean, Lovecraft super into the idea of high art, of of writing for writing's sake, of creating awesome art and not creating things for commercial reasons, right? I mean, this is the reason he dies young and in poverty while people around him are making it as writers and Lovecraft simply refused. I mean, so frequently he would get stories back with editorial suggestions, do these few things and I can buy this story for enough money for you to pay rent for four months and he wouldn't do it. And this, I think, goes back to Seabury Quinn, who we did last time as the, the, the previous story we did, The Horror on the Links, where Lovecraft really disliked Seabury Quinn for being a sellout, but also, I think, probably was envious of Seabury Quinn for making it, right? I mean, that's always sort of a double-edged sword there. But I think that if we're envisioning, you know, weird tales that has stories by Lovecraft and stories by Seabury Quinn, I mean, I think Gogol would fit in just great. And I would love that magazine. I would love to have a magazine that's got uh, iconic occult detective in a you know pulp setting that's just page turning romp of an adventure uh, that is playing with genre tropes and is fun and exciting and funny. And then also this, right? That is heavy and uh, sad and, and horrifying uh, rather than than thrilling. That's a magazine I would love to get. Yeah, I was thinking about what <laughs> what other things would be in this issue where Google gets, uh, you know, they buy the rights to the Google story and publish it, you know, with maybe a Poe story and a Seabury <laughs> Quinn story or something like that. I was like, where's that issue? It would be awesome to be a reader of these entertainments and then come across like some Russian literature that that would just be the ideal, I think, context in some sense to encounter this story for a lot of people. Well, I think we're going to, we will be talking about this more with, with Lovecraft as we do more Lovecraft on the show. And, you know, of course, famously Lovecraft was actually offered the job of editing Weird Tales, but uh, he did not want to move to Chicago, which of course is offensive to me as someone who uh, was born and raised in Chicago land, but he, he thought Chicago was going to be a terrible place to live and he wanted to stay in Providence. But there is also something to be said for, you know, what would Lovecraft actually have done with Weird Tales? He probably would have just tried to reprint Gogol and Poe and like not 
actually ever published Seabury Quinn or anything like it. And the reality of it is, right, that we are living in a capitalist world where things need to be profitable in order for us to have the art. That the profits that Weird Tales made from Seabury Quinn selling magazines is what enabled Lovecraft to get paid. Lovecraft and and other people. And that is kind of the reality of it. And I think, though, that is the reality of it that Gogol is so opposed to here in this story, right? That he's envisioning a world in which, uh, you know, a right-thinking monarch is uh, opening up the coffers and keeping artists employed without the artists having to cheapen themselves to commercialism. And frankly, I think this is a worldview that Lovecraft would sign up for. And I I would love to hear that conversation between Lovecraft and Gogol. Uh, I never before thought that would be the answer to uh, which famous dead people would you invite over for dinner? (laughs) But that's my answer right now. I think they'd have a great conversation. Well, I'm at the point in our in our conversation where I'm just thinking about making Ghostbuster two jokes, so <laughs> to save our audience from that, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. Oh, you have no idea how much I resisted that, and I want full credit from listeners that we uh, we only made this very one meta joke at the very end about Vigo. Uh, well, I'm Glenn McDorman, and you can find us and our other creative projects at ClayTempleMedia.com. And if you would like to support the network, uh, you know, maybe you are a right thinking monarch who would like to open the coffers. Uh, We would really appreciate that. So please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. You can also tell us what you thought of our coverage of this story on our Clay Temple forums or on our subreddit. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the portrait. We, as this become kind of the typical case with novellas chose one avenue in to discuss there are many more and we'd love to engage with you on them i also want to thank everybody who has reviewed us on apple podcasts Uh, it's a huge help to us if you haven't done it yet please do it please rate and review us and i also want to thank the reviewer who nominated this story this was a real pleasure to read and it was a really wonderful week i spent with this story Yeah, I am so glad to have read this story. Now, of course, now also we have Short Story Collection by Nikolai Gogol, so we can go back and mine this for more. It's one of the the great things about nominations and commissions. I do also want to repeat your thanks, Brandon, to everyone who participated in our review writing contest. And of course, remind people that uh, we are still doing that contest in the sense that when we get to 100 reviews on Apple Podcast, we uh, uh, we will go to the Lovecraft well. We will do five or six episodes as a bonus series on The Call of Cthulhu. But before then, next time, we are going to be back with the first of two episodes on Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, We're going to be in the 19th century for a little while here on Elder Sign. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. 